UNESCO aims to create an internet of trust by addressing misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, and conspiracy theories. These guys are basically saying, what we're saying is true, what you're saying is false, and to dictate how everyone has to feel on every particular issue, and you have to toe that line. But once these tools are in place, it covers everything. None of these regimes that now have a stranglehold on organizations like the UN care about free speech. No. You see them using these social movements as essentially the wedge to open the door into this tyranny. We've now got Moderna spying on its critics with the help of ex-FBI officials. Guys like Djokovic, Musk, Russell Brand, it's about freedom of choice. Anti-vax is another one of those disinfo terms that people use. It's just a derogatory term meant to pigeonhole dissent. I think one thing is like this disinformation department thing. Everybody's got their own little ministry of truth. I wonder who even came up with that term. Do you know when that started? This whole disinformation thing? Disinformation is literally just the liberal version of fake yeah, news. Yeah, it's just a better way of saying it. Hey everybody, welcome to The Blender Report, where news meets rational thinking. I'm your host, Jonathan Harvey, and this is your now more permanent co-host, Liam DeBoer. Liam, how you doing, bud? Good, brother, good. Excited to be back and uh, get chatting about some more, some more craziness going on in the world. Just before we get going, I just want to tell everybody, or ask everybody kindly, to follow us on YouTube, uh, like and subscribe. If you like what we're putting down, leave us a comment, that would be great. Um, you can also find us on Spotify, and if you're really into what we're doing, you can join us at blendernews.com, and you can sign up for our daily newsletter, it's out six, well, it's six days a week. Uh, takes a lot of time and effort. We'd love to have you there. Anyway, let's get into it. So first off, we've got UN free speech. So the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, better known as UNESCO, has unveiled a plan to regulate social media and online communication, targeting what it calls, quote-unquote, false information and conspiracy theories. The 59-page plan includes global policies to curb various forms of speech while promoting objectives such as cultural diversity and gender equality. UNESCO aims to create an internet of trust by addressing misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, and conspiracy theories. Examples of expression flagged for restriction include concerns about elections, public health measures, and advocacy that could be seen as incitement to discrimination. Yeah, see, for, for me, this is just another really big piece in the global censorship apparatus. I mean, you're seeing it all over the West, and you're seeing now the UN sort of lead the way. And I think they've been going on about this for a while. But a few months back, when Melanie Jolie from Canada, I think she co she co-wrote the bill with, I believe, Netherlands, um, and it was it they're the ones that kind of pushed this into the UN. And this idea was that all of the countries around the world that are a part of the UN are going to go back and use their policy, their legislation tools they have to implement some sort of rule around managing mis- and disinformation. So this is something that I saw coming. Um, I'm a little surprised to see where it is with them using things like the internet, uh, the internet of trust. That's very, <laughs> that's very ministry of truth, you know, from, from Orwell. Um, but that's exactly what this is, right? You know, these guys are basically saying that what we're saying is true, what you're saying is false. We have an unregulated... Um, we have an unregulated, basically, path to say whatever we want and to dictate how everyone has to feel on every particular issue, and you have to toe that line. And what we're going to do is we're going to put in, basically, legislation or criminalize anything that you do to break those rules. You know, a lot of people are sitting there going, well, I don't really care. Whatever they're going on about doesn't matter. But the issue that you have here is today, it's maybe we're talking, you and I are talking about free speech and how does that affect people. But once these tools are in place, it covers everything. It covers every single issue. And I just think people are not paying close enough attention to what this really means and where this goes. You know, it's, it's kind of wild. 
if you haven't read 1984 in a while, I'd suggest giving it a reread. They are following that to a T. They are, they are basically taking that book and they are implementing it across the world. It's, it's oddly similar. Well, you know, there's, so there's, there's a couple other things, too, in this bill that sort of struck me as odd. I actually have to throw the question at you because it was a little vague. So they, the, they want to have these independent operators that build an international framework that goes over top of things that like, would be in a constitution. And that's kind of, that was kind of how they framed it. So my, my question is, if you've got something else that differs from the U.S. constitutional standards for freedom of speech... Do they supersede what's happening in the United States? Do these guys get to build an apparatus that now goes over top and becomes the rule of law? Because that's the way they framed it. But from what you and I know from the UN, they're more of a guidance counselor. They don't really have that kind of power. So they would need a global buy-in to do it. But, but it was a little concerning because it makes me think, now there's no sovereignty for any countries when it comes to censorship. These are the rules. We are now the Gestapo, and you are going to listen to us. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It sounds conspiratorial to say one world government, right? But listen to what these people say that from the UN types, the WEF types, all of this. They commonly use a phrase saying global citizens. Well, who's you know, a citizen of what? Like who's who's granting that sovereignty or that citizenship? Right. To be a global citizen, there would have to be a global government. So you, you see them using this language on one end, but then shying away and calling people conspiracy theorists for using the alternative phrase. Right. I mean, even you see what the WHO is pushing with the pandemic treaties across global nations that they would then be able to, in the case of another pandemic, they would then be able to create the action plans and instill them and make countries go along with them as part of like a global global peace treaty essentially on but with public health it's very similar as to what the un is doing with this free speech and all of this these speech laws yeah. and, and internet censorship it is so to your point where it does seem like they are totally okay with creating new legislation that they view as can go above and beyond our constitutions and bill of rights and such. Yeah. See, one of the things that actually concerned me is so when you try to implement something like the WHO is with a, with a with a pandemic, you need the country to comply. So, and what I mean is you need to mobilize things physically, right? So if you're like you guys are locking down, and if let's say Trump's in charge, he goes, "How about go fuck yourself?" That's the response you're going to get. There's going to be no like non-compliance, right? The the concern I have is. These guys are trying to limit free speech, and their primary goal is to control digital outlets, right? So some of the things that they pointed out is they recommend algorithm suppression, obviously warnings, content removal, and deplatforming people. So what's interesting about their position on this versus maybe the WHO or the pandemic is you don't actually need compliance from the country. You just need compliance from the social media companies. So I guess this becomes an issue of, how, so it becomes a power and influence thing, right? Can the UN influence enough countries? And I'm just building a use case. I'm thinking this as I'm saying it, it's just a thought in my head right now. If the UN is like, we are going to strong arm these social media companies into suppressing, suppressing rather, all this free speech or, or whatever we deem as mis or disinformation, right? And if they get enough countries, say 40, 50 big countries comply, because these people are sort of, they're buried, they're, they're based in authoritarian regimes. The CCP is, is woven into UNESCO. So if they have enough support, and with that support, they can go to the social media companies and go, you are going to suppress this in the United States, whether they push back or not, or these 40 countries that are on our side are going to block your platforms, and there goes your advertising dollars, and there goes your money. So even though, you know, the UN doesn't genuinely, generally rather have that power, 
In this particular case, it's a very unique landscape that that could go that way. So I find it interesting, you know, that they're positioning themselves like this. But it, it, I think this is just going to be sort of a new a new game of warfare because the United States is pushing back a little bit, right? So I was a little unfamiliar with this. Um, the the U.S. has backed out of UNESCO a couple of times, uh, basically because of their their base in sort of authoritarian regimes and that kind of stuff. Um, but they just joined again under Biden. So there's a there's a good chance, you know, you get your Trump comes back in or Poiliev comes in and they they back out of these things. But again, if UNESCO has got enough power to control or govern these social media bodies because they've got so much leverage from other countries saying, yeah, if we don't do this, we're we're canceling them. What happens? It, it's a radical idea, but that's why I'm totally on board with the idea of just dissolving the UN, UNESCO, WHO, all of these things is because they've become they've become captured by these totalitarian nations that you're talking about, these dictatorships. The the list of who, which countries get to vote on international human rights violations are undoubtedly the countries that are most guilty of yeah, human rights it's violations. Wild. It's just who are you paying to get into power? It's completely insane. And, you know, a good example of it even is, so, for instance, the largest voting block of the UN is Middle Eastern nations. Right. This is why you see... Israel get the most amount of human rights condemnations, which they've definitely gone over uh, in 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 had human rights violations, definitely for sure, Undou undoubtedly. But China has zero. That's what. You <laughs> Honestly, man, I love how much China puts into trying to fool the world that they're great people. Yeah, they're like, if you say anything bad about us, we're gonna bury you. But they do it out in the open, so everyone's still like, bro, we it's it's everything's on the table. What the hell are you doing? So not even will they not call out the worst countries at on stages like the UN. But then you see it in even our country. Remember when they they were holding a uh, a vote as to whether to classify the Uyghur Muslims being in forced labor camps in uh, in China, whether they were going to declare that as genocidal or not. Right. And most of the Liberal Party didn't show up to House of Commons that day. They, they essentially abstained from voting because they didn't want to piss off China. Papa, and say, yeah. yeah. And so it, it's it's absolutely crazy as to how, how deep it goes. But I think wrapping back into the free speech idea with you know, none of these regimes that now have a stranglehold on organizations like the UN care about free speech. No, they don't have they don't have anything even resembling free speech in their countries. And so you think about, OK, if you wanted to get rid of free speech on a global scale, which is very important in, to these authoritarians now with how widespread the Internet is, everybody just openly communicating and not being fed their information from one yeah, authority source. not a single source. Right. You can't tell your story sticking to an agenda you see them using these social movements as essentially the wedge to open the door into this tyranny because, okay, we're, we're going to pass speech laws to be more inclusive, to not harm, whether it be transgender folk or indigenous folk or minorities or whatever. We're going to, we're going to put all of this, this in here to, to protect people. And then everybody in society goes, well, I would never oppose protecting anybody. I want those people to have their, their a good life just like everyone else. And that's right. But it's kind of like that same idea back to the Patriot Act after post 9-11 yeah. where it was, so like, it was just thinking, how could you be against the Patriot Act? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's to save that's America. That's really good marketing, by the like, way, well, the Patriot the, Act. The Patriot Act is to spy on Americans. What are you talking about saving Americans? You're spying on them. Yeah, and that's only gotten worse, man. I was reading something the other day from AT&T 
is uh, with um, with uh, NSA, and they're tracking trillions of phone calls every single day in America. With basically, there's just no rules. They do whatever they want, tracking everybody's information, who they're talking to, what's going on. I'm like, that's wild. And they're just and 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 you know what's funny is all the presidents of the last three are all complicit. They all signed and agreed to it. They know exactly what's going on. It's just only gotten worse. But I agree, that's a really good example to say, hey, remember when this happened? Look where it is now. What do you think this does? I think people don't realize that our government, like the best way to describe our government, global governments, genuinely, they're wolves dressed up in sheep's clothing. That's what they are. They promise you something nice, and then they're going to rip your fucking throat at the first opportunity they get. But you know what was interesting? We were talking about sort of free speech, and there, there seems to be a cat and mouse game, right? First, it was, you know, you just go to the town square, and you'd, you'd just bark and complain about the king, and you just get hung. We're going to just kill that guy. Then you had, you know, you could in the newspaper. So then what they did was if you could spread the if you could spread the word via via like, you know, newspaper or a printing press, etc., then they're like, how do we control this? Okay, so they bought up all the scale newspapers. And then they did the same with the radio. And then they did the same with television. So they, they keep owning every apparatus over time. And it's a combination of government and corporation, right? So now you're getting to this point where social media is probably the most, like in their opinion, the most egregious, you know, like the opportunity it has to to really open them up to a lot of trouble, a lot of a lot of a lot of criminal behavior that they actually exhibit, we can identify by using these tools. So, like, shit, we really have to get a hold of this. And it looks like this is what they're doing with stuff like UNESCO and all, all the other bills on disinformation around the world. So, my question is, what do you think is next? I think it is going to end up being social media platforms, but through a decentralized, uh, some sort of decentralized technology. What are your thoughts on that? I, I hope it goes that route, whether somebody will get it off in time, because I feel it, it it's almost a race in a sense where can they launch a decentralized social media platform while everyone still has free access on the internet to find said decentralized platform, whereas if it becomes increasingly censored and authoritarian in that sense, then who knows, maybe that then we're talking about now just like in China where you can't even access certain websites or modems because it's just straight up blocked at the internet source. Um, so whether you'd have to start using VPNs and all that kind of stuff, who knows? I do see the charade is essentially being lifted off. There's even people that I've known and grown up with and stuff that five years ago you would have talked to and they would eat everything up that they're being told on right. on the news. And now they're starting to go, it's just what I'm seeing on this TV screen and what I'm seeing in reality when I walk outside my door, they're not, they're not matching up. Yeah, and they don't compute. They might not be able to tell you why or why those things are happening, but I think they're starting to at least identify that there's a, there's, an issue going on at least. Right. So hopefully, hopefully that that public pressure mounts. But then again, we just saw with Google going along with this the news bill in Canada. Yeah. Essentially, it's like fuck. That's a that's a win in the government direction in the centralization direction for them. So I hope that's the way it goes as to what you're pointing out. But who knows? Well, I think. I mean, I, I'm sort of the eternal optimist. I think yeah, that yeah. there is. I always think we're going to try to, I always think we're going to find a solution. If they compromise internet, then we find a new way to feed that. If they compromise social, we find a new, we, we, I think that humans are, are, I think we're resourceful. I think we're resilient and I think we will find a way through. But what I'm identifying now is these censorship bills, stuff that's happening with UNESCO uh, and these, this global government sort of, they're in lockstep on this. We are looking at social media being compromised in, in the long run. Right now, it's happening. Oh, yeah. And it's just a matter of how long does it take to get to to get there. 
and there's still going to be sort of this like you have freedom the same way that we you have a vote you just have to pick one of these two guys so it'll it'll still there'll still be some existence of freedom on social media but i think now is the time that thing probably within the last couple of years really through covid is when we sort of hit that inflection point where it's like we've gone another way this is going this is on its way out and we need to find a solution so if there are some smart people out there that want to start working on this that would be great on to the next topic here We've now got Moderna spying on its critics with the help of ex-FBI officials. So the pharmaceutical company Moderna is reportedly employing a team of former law enforcement officials to track anti-vaccine sentiment. The team, which is part of Moderna's disinformation department, Ministry of Truth, some might call yeah. <laughs> it, has compiled reports on high-profile individuals who have been critical of vaccine mandates, including tennis star uh, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic. But you don't know the Joker? Bro. <laughs> I've read his name a million times, yeah. just realized, never once said it out loud. <laughs> as well with uh, the tech mogul Elon Musk and actor Russell Brand. The team's reports have flagged the U.S. Open victory as a high-risk event because it could bolster anti-vaccine claims. They have also expressed concern about Musk's questioning of the COVID vaccine's effectiveness and Brand's criticism of pharmaceutical companies. Moderna's disinformation department is headed by Nikki Rutman, a former FBI analyst, Rutman is reportedly in charge of monitoring mainstream news and in internal outlets for vaccine skeptic information. The department also uses artificial intelligence software to track vaccine-related content across a large number of websites. So uh, what's what's your thoughts on all that? That's well, pretty uh, crazy. I think one thing is like this disinformation department thing. I mean, this has just become a weaponized cult against logic. That's what this is, right? Yeah. Everybody's got their own little ministry of truth. Like, we get to make up what, what the truth is because that doesn't exist anymore. And um, everything we say is just, you know, this is how it is. I wonder who even came up with that term. Do you know when that started, this whole disinformation thing? It started through COVID. I'm just wondering who. Yeah. Because someone who, someone who was thinking, like, that's a really good move. That's, it was, like, really strong propaganda. You know, this mis-disinformation stuff, um, it's pretty dangerous. And all it is is this, is like I said, it's just this weaponized cult against logic. I mean, it's pretty wild. So that, that I mean, is something I think people should pay attention to when you've got pharmaceutical companies that have disinformation boards, like who's next? Who's next that's just gonna be, hey, we, we wanna just set the record straight here by telling you a bunch of lies because everyone's kind of figured out our game. Fuck you. Um, you know, the next thing is, I think one thing that I'd like to point out for a lot of people is guys like Djokovic, Musk, Russell Brand, it's, it's about freedom of choice. It's not about being anti-vax, right? Anti-vax is another one of those disinfo terms that people use. It's just a derogatory term, basically meant to pigeonhole dissent. And I think I think it's important to identify that because like there were a lot of problems with how they rolled this out. And the only thing that's worse is what has happened since. Right. So for me, it's pretty wild that they get away with with saying things like that. Um, but you know, my, my bigger concern here is what are they doing with all this data? Why do you need it, right? Because you're not going to pay that much money for something unless you're going to utilize it. You're not going to have a disinformation board unless you plan on doing something, right? So I, I kind of see it as these three things. Like, first of all, they're going to sort of adjust their advertising strategy. Maybe how they're going to market, where they're going to market. You saw that the shot of the day was Novak Djokovic during the U.S. Open. Like, it's just, it's crazy that they, you know, they, they did that overlap on purpose. They were one of the primary sponsors. Um, and I wonder if they get in the way of that to sort of be at the table. And, you know, and that I think is sort of a, I think that honestly is more of a minor example because it's in front of our face. But I think a lot of times they take this information and they go, how do we need to market 
Because if people are following this guy, we need to make sure we break down this guy as disinformation and what we're saying as the truth. So I think I think that's one of them. That's the least nefarious. I think the other ones are actually worse. The next one is how they're going to use these things to shape policy. When they understand what the most influential people are saying about their products, which, which is accurate, to be honest with you, what they call disinformation, they can then go to these governing bodies, whether it's in Canada or whether it's global, UN, EU, whatever it is, and I think that they can help shape policy in their favor based on what the what they would call rhetoric, based on what, what the people are saying, you know? Um, because we all know how powerful they are. We all know how powerful Big Pharma is in and around the world. We, we're seeing this now with them suing Poland for billions of dollars because they don't want these vaccines. And that's very dangerous because if that goes through, it sets a precedent around the world. And again, it just shows you how powerful these companies have become. And, and, and it's pretty obvious. You know, when, when countries are signing agreements that don't guarantee safety, which we know they don't have to, but also don't guarantee efficacy. And then we sign for hundreds of billions of billions of doses. I kind of find it funny that they're like one and done. Well, then how come we bought like six for everyone, you idiot? So anyway, it, it just kind of goes to show their influence. The reason I'm sort of bringing that up is because I believe they're using these things uh, to shape policy. And I think we're looking at them highlighting some, some high profile people, but I believe that they're doing more research, especially with this AI stuff, to understand bigger macro trends in the market. What's trending, what people are saying, what's going on. And then I think they try to shape policy around suppressing this. I think the primary benefactor behind a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, um, infringement on free speech things are coming from pharma companies because it suits their needs. It's like they're another version of social media where they don't really care what happens to people. They just want to make their money. They don't care about your cause. So they implement policy to improve their bottom line. That's that's sort of the that's the the dark nature of corporate culture. It's kind of what it is. Um, you know, the last thing, which is a, it might be a, people might think it's a bit of a stretch. I don't really think it is. I think it's pretty obvious. I think they're gathering this data to smear or discredit these people. And the reason I think this is because if they're out there saying something you don't like, there's probably a term for it, and I bet you know what it is. Um, when you try to say one thing and then then tie that string to another idea to discredit someone completely, even though they're completely disconnected. Mm, so yeah. <clears throat> you look at Russell Brand now, I don't know whether he's innocent or not. It's not really, I'm not, I don't want to weigh in on that right now. But it's funny that no one ever said anything. Then he goes against all these big pharma companies, and now all these cases come up. And these cases came up because these these companies in the in the UK, these um, media companies, when it did all this research on him and dug into his past and tried to to pull up whatever they could or find whoever, whether he did it or not, relevant in a sense. But who paid for that? Who's who's the benefactor? Well, one of their primary sponsors are Moderna and Pfizer. I'm not saying it's directly related, but it kind of stands to reason. You know what I mean? So. They use this data to sort of smear these people. And look at Elon Musk. That guy takes on more fire from the media than anyone I've ever seen. And honestly, like, I don't care. To be, that guy's changing the world for the better. I know sometimes people don't agree with his political views or the things he says or his fucking dad jokes or shitty humor sometimes. But I mean, the guy's on the spectrum. Give him credit. He's, he's the most social guy in the world. And he's definitely there. You know, so, so for me, I think, you know, people could give him a little more flexibility and his, his quirkiness because I think he's making a big difference in the world in a very positive way. But you're seeing these companies doing whatever they can to sort of smear him. Now, there's a lot of people that I think benefit from smearing Elon Musk. So I don't think it's just big pharma in this case. But again, it kind of goes to show what's happening here. And then we'll go with, with even um, with, with Djokovic. He wasn't allowed to compete at the Australian Open because he wasn't vaccinated. So he was finally allowed to go at the, or the US Open. And then he was finally able to go back and he won it. But who influenced that? Because it was not logic. There's, there was no logic used in that decision-making, right? 
None at all. It was, you're on our side of the fence or you're not allowed in, even though we've got no facts to back us up. So who's supporting this? Who's funding these things? Well, we know how much money these companies are putting into these countries and these governments, and we know how much influence they have over media. So I think this is pretty dangerous. It's a pretty dangerous space that these guys can sort of weaponize ex-FBI agents to track down, you know, disinformation against their brand. And I really hope that it's not a trend of things to come, but when there's this much money involved and what we saw through the pandemic and how, how much cash these guys made hand over fist, it might just be the way of the world now. I don't know if it's, it's the technical term for it or anything, but it is just weaponized character character destruction. It's it's the idea of if we if we tear down this one person, then everything that that person stands for gets torn down along with it. Yes. So a good example, I think probably the best example of it is Alex Jones, who undoubtedly has said some wild and unhinged <laughs> shit. Wild shit. But and he I freaks. Think, he, he is so animated. Yeah. Sorry. But I no. So, but I think he also. <laughs> probably has a better track record of being on right on big topics than most mainstream media. I think he bats eight for 10, roughly. If you go by Joe Rogan's numbers, he bats eight for 10. The guy's record is phenomenal. It's crazy. Even a week before 9-11, he was on the streets warning about a 9-11 sized uh, attack. You look back for 20, 30 years, he's been calling things as they happen. And you're like, yeah, okay. So he gets, say, Sandy Hook extremely wrong. And he's he's definitely wrong on that one thing. And then they use that to just lampoon him and then say, okay, well, this is so obviously crazy what he's saying. And it makes everyone else in, in public perception now go, okay, well, everything that guy's saying must be crazy. Yeah. And I mean, it's even, I think, a common tactic as well with, with intelligence agencies, with with this spread of conspiracy theories, where you'll see genuinely wild conspiracy theories, say like flat Earth and all this kind of stuff, and then they'll lump it together with a lot more plausible conspiracy theories. So they'll be like people that believe that the CIA assassinated JFK are also most likely to believe that the Earth is flat. Yep. And then by so by tying these two things together, one that is actually just just incomprehensible off the hop and then by tying it to something that could be very well plausible if not undeniable at this yeah. point then then now you you start throwing uh, essentially seeding doubt into that yeah topic. you dilute the idea yeah and, and what you were talking about there too with whoever coined the term disinformation I think that's just a marketing trick off of something that was coined and was very effective multiple years beforehand which was fake news yeah uh disinformation is literally just the liberal version of fake yeah news. it's just a better way of saying it yeah, yeah yeah it's just more kids yeah what's ironic about both of them is it's like whether it's right-leaning media outlets or left-leaning media outlets majority of them that are on a corporate international scale are lying through their teeth they are pretty much disinformation outlets or fake news outlets, whatever you want to call them. But both sides just look at it and go, well, it's, it's them. It's them spreading the lies or come trust our lies. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't want any of those second rate lies. We got the good stuff over here. <laughs> so, yeah. It's trash. When I see these kinds of things, it just makes me sort of boil down to the, the just the, the idea that humans have kind of lost their way. You know what I mean? I know it's, this is like a little, like a little macro for the idea, but I just get, I get a little caught up sometimes in this stuff where people just continually put power and profit over progress in the people. And, you know, you get these companies doing these things that, that are sort of falling very much in line with that idea. And it's sad because 
it happened so slowly over time. They just kept moving one inch at a time. And now we're so far away from what is decent for humans. We just, it's such, we live in such a, we live in such a backwards way to how most humans would like to live and to how we can live to actually evolve as a species. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean evolution, like grow a fucking tail. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, you know, have more peace, have more love, have more unity, have more for everybody. We've just gotten so far into this, this fold of, of power and profit. Um, I genuinely wonder if we can ever get out of it. No, to stay on that, to stay on the meta level of it though, I do think that history is just a constant cycle between whether you want to call it decentralization versus centralization, whether you want to call it uh, collectivism versus liberty, any of these things, it seems like a, a revolution starts getting enough steam that at a certain point, like you're talking about, it seems like there's no going back. The only thing that feels like it can stop at that point is it collapsing in on itself. It's something from essentially becoming unstable from its own size. And I think that's what happens. I mean, that's I, that's what happened with the Soviet Union even, which is probably the most egregious example of a authoritarian state in, in history. It's one of those things where I think a lot of people are naive in believing that there can just be some policies taken out, some legislation taken out, and all of a sudden the ship will start writing its way again. But I think it's much more of a collapse thing. And then you got to look at it more so as do you want this bubble to continue growing and then it when it bursts it it's much much larger of a bang yeah or do you want to burst the bubble now before before it encapsulates a lot more and the sam harris types of the world would would go tooth and nail and say well we must must have trust in our institutions and we can't we can't undermine them a, a society without so whether it be education pharmaceutical companies governments all of this kind of stuff can't survive and they're right but it's like you almost need to rip them down now because they're just they're completely tyrannical. Yeah. So I think there's there's two ways to look at this. One is if you want your institutions to work, you have to work for your institutions. So people have to get involved, right? That's one that's one way of looking at it. The other way that I sort of see it is it's actually so big and so interconnected globally that I don't know how you have a fall of the Soviet Union anymore because you've got. NATO, you're, you've got, you basically got two factions, right? So it's gotten to the point that I don't know how the bubble bursts. I don't know how it falls apart. And then we have some sort of, some sort of like, I'm going to call it level playing field for lack of a better term. So we have some sort of level playing field where we can sort of rebuild and try to reestablish, you know, how humans should survive and live and thrive and what should, you know, how to bring peace and how to, you know, evolve properly. I, do you think that there's ever a future on this planet as humans that that happens no i don't and two i think i think at the end of the day it's just human nature it's 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 unavoidable if you look at it, so many instances throughout history so many of the so many of the issues that we face today have been faced by all great civilizations before us so i i think it's i think it's a matter of human nature and real evolution like you're talking about whether it be growing a tail or even psychological evolution Man, we're talking about things that take place over tens of thousands of years. So the idea, so it's like that's uh, getting over human nature. I don't think is something that we can can really do. So at this point, it seems like these issues are inevitable to some to some degree. I mean, I hate to say it because I'm not for these things at all. But the only way that I could see you overriding some of these mechanisms that are just in our DNA 
to avoid them happening on societal wide levels is like merging with tech, some sort of thing with Neuralink or AI, all of this kind of stuff. And you're like, that's the only way you're ever going to override human nature. Right. And so, I mean, that's not a solution that I want to put in place, but I do wonder if there is some people large scale that go, all right, for this, you know, one world uh, under one banner type of idea, yeah. this is this is the route to go there. I think it's inevitable that we merge with machines. I think that's going to happen no matter what. I think if not, you're going to be left behind. And I think as generations move forward, um, you know, it's just going to be kind of the way of the world for sure. Where we turn, where we, where we go from there, I don't really know. But at the end of the day, no, I mean, to kind of just to kind of circle back, I guess I find it a little frustrating that these big companies just keep doing nefarious things that are not really good for humanity. And we're sort of forced to go down this line of doing these things that are more radical to try to, to try to write, uh, write the ship, you know, um, correct our course. I don't think you and I are going to see it in our lifetime. I think we're going to end up seeing a lot more violence than anything, to be honest with you, because I don't I think this is becoming an untenable situation for a lot of people. Um, but again, the rebuild for me, the rebuild for me takes decades. All right. So the last topic we'll go on to here is a bit of a longer one, but Gad Saad, who is a professor in Montreal, evolutionary psychologist, wrote a book called The Parasitic Mind. Who He's also distilled it down into an article, which you did a great job of condensing in the newsletter the other day. But it, I figured we'd go over a couple different parts of what he talked about. So uh, the general summary is the West is facing an ex existential threat from a host of parasitic ideas that are undermining its very foundation. These ideas rooted in postmodernism, cultural relativism, and misplaced empathy are eroding our sense of shared reality, meritocracy, and morality. Postmodernism, with its emphasis on subjective relativism, has opened up the floodgates to a denial of objective truths. This intellectual sleight of hand has eroded our ability to distinguish between fact and fiction, leading to a society where truth is malleable and subject to personal interpretation. So this is something that I've been trying to boil down for people in a for a long time, and it's 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 hard to get these concepts across because even just the idea of ideologies themselves it kind of typically starts going over a bunch of people's heads but you could think about an ideology as a set of beliefs that orient a group or a person's moral compass that decide what actions are worth taking what goals are worth pursuing and essentially an ideology is a hierarchy of values and postmodernism is a offshoot of Marxism. So they had, there was a couple different prominent philosophers that came out of France in the 1960s. Uh, Mike, uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida are the two main ones. And they're both self-described Marxists. And essentially what they did was they realized that Marxism wasn't very, and communism wasn't very marketable to the Western nations. So they, instead of saying that the oppression and power existed across economic lines, they took it a step further and said that it happens across identity lines. So postmodernism, what Gad Saad points out in this, this article and book, is that it's the concept that there's no such thing as objective reality. There's only like, that's where you see all of these ideas of like your speak, your truth as if the, as if truth can be subjective, which is just antithetical to the idea. But this is, 
the precursor for what we're seeing now where you know even on stuff like transgenderism this is this these are the ideas that have boiled out of this postmodernist ideology which is that however you feel is is what reality is so i was just wondering with with the with the idea of postmodernism as gad sad has talked about where do you see that coming up most, where it's just kind of this idea of just complete subjectivism? You know what is interesting? I think it's actually a tool that they use to break down society to try to rebuild it in a way that is, like you said, more Marxist. I think these are these are tools from sort of a communist playbook, in my opinion. And one of the things that they do is they try to break down objective truth for a reason, because then they can rebuild the truth that they want you to understand. And they also want you to look to them for all the answers. And, and, and the ways that you're seeing this, I mean, the gender one is a great one, right? You're seeing a lot of this, you know, how are we breaking down objective truth in this space? Well, they say that men can have babies, right? They're literally challenging biology and telling you, if you don't believe this, you're wrong. And you're going to get canceled and all these other things. But like you said, it's like a hit song on the radio. Hear it a hundred times and you're singing along to it, right? Um, the other place that we're seeing this, you know, it's kind of in the education system. And I don't mean, I mean, traditional education, you're sitting in math. I don't know if you remember this, but they were trying to break down the objective truth of math saying, oh, it's racist or two plus two can be five. And, and I got to, here's the thing with math that I think a lot of people maybe have not gotten to this point of understanding. English is a language we created. We wrote it. We made it up. Languages that everybody speak around the world, we make up. Math is not. Math is finite. You actually discover mathematics. It's already there, and you just uncover how to create the solutions with the information that's available. You don't create it. You just eventually discover and understand it. It's like digging for gold. It's already there. So it is as objective as anything can be. So for me, it's absolutely insane that we take this idea that we are now telling people that of all the things you learn in school, math is the most objective, that now that is subjective. So those are like, I think, two really good examples in society where they've taken things that we know to be truth and fact that we build our, our internal foundation upon and they try to shake them. They try to break them down so that you start losing your objective truth or your view on what objective truth is across the board. So you look to them for answers. So that's kind of how I'm seeing that applied in society. Are there any other examples you can think of that really stand out? Anything that gets labeled a social construct, I see that's where this is is at play. I mean, Derrida, one of the the philosophers I was mentioning that coined postmodernism and helped bring it into prominence, he was self-described as a constructionist, which was breaking down these social constructs of gender, of race, of sexuality, and so on. And the Marxist idea there was, okay, we're not oppressed across economic lines were were oppressed by identities where where these stories these grand narratives are what are oppressing us and so we we the people must just create whatever story we want for ourselves this leads in perfectly into another portion of the parasitic mind by gad sad where he talks about the so-called D.I.E. cult, the die, the die cult, cult yeah. with its focus on diversity, inclusion, and equity, has infiltrated our institutions, transforming meritocracy into an elaborate game of identity politics. Hiring and promotion decisions are now based on skin color, sexual orientation, or gender identity, rather than competence and qualifications. So I pulled this portion of, of uh, this was actually out of his book, this quote where he says, 
Mark J. Perry, a professor of economics at the University of Michigan Flint, has estimated that the University of Michigan has 93 employees on its payroll to uphold the tenants of Dai for a total yearly cost of more than $11 million. The top Dai administrator within that list receives a yearly compensation of $396,000, more than the combined salary of four faculty members at most American universities. So it's like, how can businesses, universities, and other institutions survive financially if they're becoming increasingly burdened by administrators which contribute nothing to the productivity of those institutions and merely impose these, these parasitic ideas, the postmodernist ideals, all of this kind of stuff? Their only, their only contribution is imposing these things onto these institutions and it does actually absolutely nothing to make them more productive or more helpful to society. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's two things that I see sort of with what, what's happening there. Um, one of the things with, with sort of this die cult is it's created mass victimology. Everyone's a victim and that's become part of their identity. The identity politics is that's the cool thing today is you got to be a victim of in some way. So you're seeing, and you see this, you're seeing this happen a lot in, in high schools. Um, where your standard white kid who's not going to have any problems is now non-binary. So they can have some sort of identity. They can be in the game. It's creating this victimology. So everybody needs to try to be on that side of it. Otherwise, they're the oppressor. It's the oppressor and the oppressed. So everyone's turned into a victim. The problem with that is you're saying, there, well, there's two issues. One is you're making an excuse for your life. You're saying that my, my situation is only this bad because of all these other things at play. But the other big problem with that is you're saying, well, until they change this, my life won't get any better. Look, there comes a time in everyone's life, if they evolve properly, when you realize that you are responsible for everything that happens in your life, whether it's good or bad, it's up to you. And I don't mean that it's always your fault, but you can always do something to change the situation. And it also creates a lot of entitlement. Everybody that's in this group is entitled to X more than this other person because of what they are. Because of their victimology, they're now entitled to $400,000 a year. None of this makes any sense. It's just, and, and this kind of brings me to my last point is, have you ever heard of Pornell's ironclad law bureaucracy? I think I've talked about it once on this. So any organization that has a goal, say, you know, a university, teach students. If it has any bureaucracy in it whatsoever, eventually the bureaucrats overtake the people that are accomplishing the goal, which is to teach the students how to, you know, get out of, you know, create their own life, you know, do well. So that's exactly what this is, is Purnell's ironclad law of bureaucracy is coming true in that these bureaucratic organizations are just getting bigger and they're stopping the goal, the, the goal of the company from getting done anymore. So bureaucrats always overtake the people that are actually operating in the company. And this is just a fast track to get there. Because I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but like the efficiency of people that lean into this die cult stuff versus actually working for progress, it's alarming. It's like as different as public to private sector. It's like 10x. So these things, it's interesting. You talk about, you talk about organizations collapsing in on themselves. This is what's going to do it. It's things like this. It's when you have to pay people, an organization of people, millions of dollars, because you're going you're gonna to crush under your own weight. And what are you going to do? You're going to point at this group and go, this was the problem. So what happens is over time, it becomes so extreme that the people that make the company work, they all leave and go do it again the right way. So it's one of those things where I think the, the, the snake will eventually eat its own tail. But right now, it's just eating everything else. Yeah. Like if, if you look at these institutions as a living organism per se, you could think about bureaucracy as a tumor of sorts where 
It's like, uh, it can be small enough that you hardly even notice it's there, but then it gets large enough that you're like, oh, now it's just some pains in my side. And then you, you kind of just point up, put up with it. And, but then if you leave it to a point long enough, there's no going back and it will eventually just kill you. Well, it's like the liberal government in Canada right now. It's a perfect example. It's exactly what it is. They waste billions and hundreds of billions of dollars a year and accomplish nothing. And now it's just wild to me. And you're, you're, but again, this is now you're seeing what happened in the government, which we kind of just all accept and let happen. Now you're seeing it throughout all of the other corporate culture. That's what's happening here. So it's actually going to break down the economy in such a big way. And I'm not sure how many people are going to pick up on why it happened, but I think this is one of the big reasons. I think this is going to be. Yeah, and this is uh, leads into the last little bit here of his parasitic uh, mind idea, which was the other issue that is plaguing society right now, which is cultural and moral relativism. So the notion that there are no absolute moral truths uh, has been used to justify harmful practices such as female genital mutilation in child marriage. This uh, relativistic worldview strips away our ability to condemn barbaric practices, even when they violate fundamental human rights. Cultural relativism has become a convenient excuse for cultural imperialism, allowing us to ignore the suffering of others under the guise of tolerance. A proud host nation stands unapologetically for its foundational values and does not equivocate in progressive self-flagellation under the guise of cultural tolerance. People think that everything negative that happens in Western culture is a function of Western culture, but then when negative things happen in other cultures, so like say, for instance, general mutilation in places like Africa, then, oh, well, that's just part of our, our their culture and we would all of a sudden be bigots if we condemned any of that. But then little things that every race and every civilization has been guilty for such as say instance slavery or anything like this well no the west is uniquely evil in that sense and we have to pay for those sins despite the fact that everyone ever participated in those sins but then these things now that only certain cultures still participate in then oh well that's just their culture that's okay they get a pass and then so i was wondering how you think about that with in terms of just the almost double standards of, of moral condemnation that get put on our society versus or culture versus others. Every society has to have some way to suppress the minds of the people that are there and to make them feel like they owe the world something. And those are the people that are going to be in the majority. You kind of need, it's, it's a tool, I think, that they use to make sure they can keep people in check. You tell everybody they're a terrible person, you tell everybody they're guilty of this and that and whatever, and you sort of, you put them in a bit of a moral prison and you stop them from fully realizing what they're capable of. But I believe that's why these ideologies or these ideas are put in place and, and why they target countries like us or like the United States for things like that. I think it's, I think it's more of a, I think it's more of a control mechanism than anything. The purpose of calling these things racist is to control them. It's right. a, the goal of all of this is to just call anything and everything you wish to control oppressive until you control it. And this is something that I've pointed out many times before where the social justice activists, when they point to these oppressive systems and institutions, you never see them talking about dismantling them. You see them talking about, we want to be in control of it. You need to give us that a slice of that power and then also to make those institutions more powerful, like just, you know, okay. So for instance, socioeconomic inequalities between 
white and black people. The goal is, okay, well, who created this stuff? Well, it was a racist, oppressive, colonist government. Well, what's the solution? To give everyone's money to that racist, colonialist, oppressive government, put us in charge of it, and then everything will be okay. And you're like, how does this make sense at all? Like, I, I just, so to me, I think it's that classic, you know, going back to a different book of Orwell's with the, with the whole animal farm idea, where it's just those who position themselves as liberators to tyranny often become the tyrants as all the one and the same. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think it, it, it kind of, I think that's the cyclical nature of politics and the poison of power. Mm -hmm. That's just kind yeah. of how it plays out. So yeah, uh, Gad Saad, you know, wrapping up here with his parasitic mind idea where he said, the West must reclaim its commitment to reality, meritocracy, and morality. We must reject the parasitic ideas that have eroded our society and embrace the principles that have made us prosperous and free. We must restore our faith in objective truths, merit-based systems, and universal moral values. Only then can we hope to reverse our course and rebuild a strong and vibrant West. Anything to add? We can identify that all the things Gad Saad brings up are very real. And you can see them. And, you know, we gave some good examples. Um, then you start thinking of how you can solve these problems. And a lot of it is using your own voice. But realistically, how people are going to make the biggest difference here is going to be to vote in people that push against these, this ideology and these principles through policy. I know it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be a one-shot kill. That's not how this is going to work. But I think it's going to go a long way to start implementing things so that we can try to correct course and fix some of what this damaging ideology has done to society. So I just want people to think about that. I want people to go, okay, from a political perspective, I know this is a multi-layered thing. It happens at work. It happens in the government. It happens in our own lives. But I want people to look at from a, from a, from a political perspective, who do you have to put your trust in to try to turn this ship around? And if I look at it objectively right now, it's the conservative government. So I just kind of wanted to finish with that. Right on. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye, everybody. See you next time.